Hi, this is Jeremy from Gaia Kosovo, and you are listening to the seventh episode of the Reflection Podcast series. Today, I will be speaking with Goran Mlinarevic, an independent researcher who focuses on the prosecution of wartime sexual violence and post-war issues and experiences affecting women. In addition to the feminist critique of the international criminal law, she also explores intersections and tensions between identity politics and social realities of the post-war society. Since 2015, she has been actively engaged in the support of provisions of humane and dignified treatment for the people on the move on the Balkan route, with a special focus on the situation in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Today, Gorana will discuss with us the reality of the migrants stuck in the Balkans, and we'll talk about the responsibilities of the decision-makers in the worsening of the situation. Hello, Gorana, and thank you very much for joining us for this new episode of the Reflection Podcast. Today we will talk about something that I feel is not talked about enough. We're going to talk about migration in the Balkans and what does it mean today. So we're going to talk about the migration routes, where the migrants are from, how do they get trapped in the Balkans and what is their situation today. So you are someone that knows a bit about this and uh, it's very interesting for us to have your insight. So I would like to start with something that is maybe a bit basic because we have some listeners that might not know really about this phenomenon that is a bit new to Kosovo. So could you explain a bit how the migration routes work where are the migrants from and why do they end up in the Balkans these days? Okay, thank you for having me and inviting me to talk. First of all, to explain, Balkan is a bridge between Asia and Europe. So it's always been kind of crossroad and route for people for drugs and arms. It's always around smuggling. But uh, in recent times, when we talk about people on the move that are crossing through Balkans in bigger numbers, I would say probably increase was visible and the topic was from 2015, even though I think increase in people going across the Balkans has been recorded in last 10 years, but more visible and followed by media has been since 2015. It is the consequence of the fortress Europe. So in that sense that EU is making more and more difficult for people who are not the privileged ones to come to Europe and seek either form of protection from war, from persecution, and as a consequence of the imperialism and colonialism for centuries coming from Europe and recent wars in which Europe was involved. We have increase of people that are not just affected by war or, I mean, directly affected by war or persecution by their governments, but also quite a lot of people that are due to the consequences of European imperialism, starving to death, are affected by climate change and different kind of economic and social needs. So this is why kind of we are having increase in people crossing through the Balkans because closure of the borders of Europe 
in a sense that not only that you need visa, but you can't actually get the visa, forces quite a lot of people to start moving on foot. So one route is definitely through the continent and the other is using some smugglers across the Mediterranean, but again, continue on foot. And from arriving in the EU and We are talking about arriving in the EU outer borders, being Greece, Italy to some extent, Bulgaria, because that's through Turkey, trying to get to the West. Because another consequence of the European Union's migration politics or asylum politics is that people can ask for asylum only in the land, uh, in the country where they first reached the EU. So the first contact countries such as Greece are becoming increasingly populated. So people are forced to move further because they can't get proper process of asylum, proper registration or anything because of the crowds. So yeah, that's why the Balkan route is being more and more used because we are somehow in the middle between southern borders, southern European EU countries and the West, so-called global Northwestern countries. So yeah. We are kind of in the middle, so yeah, they are using this route. And so you live in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Sadly, we heard this very tragic news a few weeks ago about the fire in the Lipa camp. We saw those photos of young people having to live in the woods by very harsh temperatures. This hit the news internationally. But I wanted to ask you to tell us about this event, this particular event and what it reflects on the general situation but also maybe to explain how is the situation in the whole country, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Well, because I mentioned 2015, and it is important to kind of stress that at that point of time, the decision of Angela Merkel was to open the borders and create the corridor through the Balkans for uh, mainly Syrian refugees, along with Syrian refugees, other other refugees from uh, Middle East mainly, but as well uh, North Africa to come to uh, the West, but that corridor lasted like a few months. So the borders closed again. Then because of the fascist politics in the certain countries, EU borders were closing. So we kind of had, first of all, stopping of the corridor that was kind of regular, so-called regular access to uh, northern slash Northwest countries, EU countries. Once that closed, there were politics of EU adopted in a way that they made arriving to EU even more difficult. So EU made agreements with Turkey and uh, Libya to kind of make more difficult for people to leave those countries. And then the second level is that because of certain European countries, EU countries going more into the right wing or to be actually completely concrete, going full-on fascist, and they kept closing the borders. So the route kind of shifted through the where it's more difficult. Bosnia, I mean, Bosnia wasn't used as much until 2018, January 2018, because there were easier crossable borders, because Bosnia is mountains and there's countries, so it's hard to walk. It's cold country. But 
the border between Serbia and uh, Hungary closed, then between Croatia and Serbia closed as well. And when I say closed, that means that border police started using violence. So the violence on the borders increased, people were starting to use more difficult route, and this is through Bosnia. So increasing people crossing Bosnia has been visible since January 2018, and it's an ongoing basis. I don't know why Lipa made the headlines, but the year before, Vucjak illegal camp made the headlines. So it is always when winter comes that a situation in Bosnia becomes quite visible. There is another thing is that the increase in violence between borders of Croatia and Bosnia is more visible. Croatian, Croatian border police is using more and more. There are reports of uh, using more and more violence and more, even more violent than it like was in 2018. So there, there are quite lots of dynamic there. Uh, it is important that since increase in flow of people on the move through Bosnia, European Union decided to finance somehow so-called humanitarian support to people on the move in Bosnia. However, they decided to give the money to the International Organization for Migration, who were more willing to spend the money the way how the EU predicted it. And that's by opening the camps uh, in the abandoned factories, first on the Northwest border, and then in Northwest region border with Croatia, and then in Sarajevo. So we have now quite significant number of camps where people, like up to thousand people, are in living in inhumane conditions. Since 2020, I think March or April, under the excuse of prevention of COVID, local government in the Northwest um, Bosnia decided to open the tent camp without proper hygienic utilities or anything in Lipa. Lipa is a place that is out of nowhere, really. It's far from the city, far from the transportation, far from anything. But this was the intention of the government to move people out of the central areas, out of the city. So this is really quite obvious racist and fascist decision. At the beginning, IOM kind of and EU objected to opening of that camp, but then they just found middle ground, let's say, with the local government and started running that camp. The camp was out, made out of tents, and as I said, hygienic conditions were really bad. I mean, we have reports of wild, different forms of violence conducted by security forces and so on, so private security forces. And this camp was kind of functioning for some time until November, December, when it was actually becoming really obvious that people are going to remain on, in the cold weather in the tents. And where Lipa camp is actually placed, that area is really known for really, really uh, low temperatures, high winds, and a lot of snow. 
There were kind of tensions created between IOM and local government because IOM requested that people be returned into the factory in the city and local government rejected. So, I mean, the situation was really tense that day. People were actually ordered to leave the camp and the fire started. I mean, there are discussions who started the fire. It's not even relevant because now there were like 1,200 people in the camp. Suddenly they remained just like even without the, the tents. What happened after the burning of the camp was that people tried to walk to the Bihach area, that's the nearest city, but they were prevented from getting there. They were again forced to remain in this open in the middle of nowhere area Uh, and this is the pictures that actually went around world Uh, important to say this is what kind of caught attention of media but at the same time people that live in the camps run by iom other camps are complaining about conditions there especially i mean there are no Uh, warm water, toilet utilities are bad, medical provisions are really bad, food is really bad. But in addition to that, there are around, I think approximately around 3,000 people in Bosnia that are not even able to access those camps because those camps are overcrowded. So in the area, people are living around squatting, uh, living in the streets of any city in Bosnia, but there are groups that are living in the woods near the border as well. And all that is because majority of people are, as I said, on the move between EU countries. They are faced with illegal pushbacks done by Croatian police, and those pushbacks are violent. And since recently, there are chain illegal pushbacks that are kind of people, even people who arrived to Austria or Italy or Slovenia are now pushed back to Croatia and then pushed back to Bosnia. So there is kind of this crowding of people in Bosnia. And on another level, I have to mention that there are some people that want to remain in Bosnia, but Bosnian government is not making easy for people to actually seek asylum because the condition here is that you have to have a dress. And the problem when you are in the camp or when you are on the street is that you are not registered. So you can't actually even have access to the asylum procedure. So after this event of the Lipa fire took the news internationally, the EU had a very harsh reaction and accused the Bosnian government of not doing enough I wanted to ask you what you think of this stance from the EU, also about the Bosnian government, if you think it's relevant to say something about this. But more generally, I wanted to ask you what the EU should do regarding the migration phenomenon in the Balkans. Are they doing enough? Are they not doing enough? What should they do? I mean... I mean, I'm going to comment on the EU reaction regarding the Lipa camp first, because EU is pretending that they are not to be blamed. So they just kind of found the Bosnian government as a scapegoat. We need to understand that Bosnia is non-functional country since to, I mean, since the signing of the Dayton Peace Agreement, so which is since before the war. 
And EU has quite a lot to do with meddling and not allowing the country to develop. Even the decision to give the money for humanitarian aid to IOM rather than government was actually uh, directed towards destabilizing the government of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So uh, it, it's a multi-layered pro problem. I'm not going to claim the government of Bosnia and Herzegovina is really great. No, it's a racist government. It's ethno-nationalist corrupted government. But we need to kind of create the mechanisms of responsibility in order for the central government to start working. So EU, again, instead of pushing for the government to work since 2018 and directly since uh, July 2018, has been providing millions and millions to IOM to kind of resolve the issues that are supposed to be uh, in jurisdiction of the government. So there is this clash because what EU created was IOM would say, oh, we do not have responsibility because this is on government responsibility and government was actually having great excuses to say, oh, it's not our responsibility, IOM got the money. So it was like, this is what EU actually caused by doing, ignoring the country and skipping the chain of responsibility. So the EU is not innocent bystander. As I previously said, all this is actually caused by really, really inhumane politics, asylum politics, migration politics of EU. Third one is all this is caused by the EU imperialist politics, if we actually go further. So our EU is not innocent bystander. It is quite involved. Uh, on the other hand, I have regarding the situation in Bosnia, and I am the one to insist all the time that it is also, no matter where the money is, it is responsibility of this government, Bosnian government, and they should actually work towards creating human dignity conditions for the people on the move. Because in the end of the day, Constitution of Bosnia and Herzegovina stressed that all people in the territory of Bosnia and Herzegovina have to enjoy, all equally enjoy human rights. Uh, so the government is ignoring that. So it is kind of, that's why I'm saying it's a multi-layered. As regards to what EU should be doing, EU should be changing its uh, migration politics. Unfortunately, they adopted, I think in November last year, the new pact on uh, migration, but it's not changing anything. It's not about opening the borders. It's more about still insisting on really restrictive politics of uh, asylum. Asylum is actually individual. So imagine like when you have a few hundred thousand people arriving to a country and all of them want to ask for asylum and every single claim has to be decided on an individual basis. So imagine like how much of the bureaucracy is involved there. So uh, EU didn't actually show any interest in changing its politics, rather it kind of reinforced them with the new pact. EU hasn't changed the politics of imperialism. I mean, EU is still exploiting the countries. EU is still involved in the wars. EU is still exporting the arms. EU is still degradating the climate. So it is kind of full on shift it, because it's not just about, I mean, 
it's not just changing migration politics and opening the border, but EU and us together, I mean, entire European continent actually lives off exploiting countries in development, African countries, Asian countries. So we have to kind of change all that and reverse that. That would be kind of my uh, my demands because I kind of think that when we just put demands of open the borders, that needs to be done. But it needs to be kind of followed with other changes in politics. I think your last point is very important that sometimes we forget that those migrants, they come because of reasons and those reasons, they originate from developed countries in what we call the West. And this is maybe where the high level authorities have something to do to prevent the misery in other places so that we don't have flows of refugees coming. But now we talked a lot about those high level authorities, so the countries and the European Union. I wanted to ask you now, how do you feel is the general feeling of the people, so the common people, the citizens of the Balkans country, towards the migrants these days? Uh, that's a difficult, I mean, it, it is a difficult question. I mean, I'm going to try to explain it with us being semi-periphery of the European sense. So we kind of are in, feel, have this peripheral kind of, uh, status as regards the rest of the Europe. I mean, we are part of the European continent, but not part of the, we are not part of the West. And so, so there are those struggles. Second struggle is, I mean, Balkan currently people, and we have been participating, but we are as well countries that contribute to migrations to the Western Europe. And plus, I have to kind of mention that we do still we are recovering really slowly or not recovering at all from the war's 90s. So it's a mishmash of everything. And response was at the beginning quite like with a compassion, but I'm not going to say that was every time unified response. With our struggles with nationalisms, with our struggles with uh, kind of feeling peripheral to the others, we are quite lots of, I mean, others in Europe, uh, we are quite lots of racists. So there was always this presence of xenophobia towards people coming in. There is always uh, discussions about, oh, these are different cultures, these are different that and this. So it seems like we are open because we are bridged geographically between Asia and Europe, but we are as well in this openness as well, quite closed. So it's in between and it's been in between all the time. You can actually see and hear quite extreme hatred. And at the moment in Bosnia, that dominates public discourse because it's manipulated by the politicians in power because Bosnia is um, extremely divided country along the ethno-national lines, but that's created with the Dayton Peace Agreement. And politicians in powers are actually those that were in power during the war, so they keep narrative of the division. So this represented creating, using the new order. I mean, we constantly kind of hate each other because there is always this other kind of put forward. So now they got another other. So just to strengthen their power. So they, this narrative is of hatred and xenophobia is really strongly present in media. But on the ground, 
quite a lot of people are involved in supporting people on the move, at least to the level they can help to feed them, to give them the clothes, to, I don't know, find a place to sleep for a night or two or something like that. So it is the mixture. But what is present in the public is quite lots of hatred as well. And I mean, it's a classic narrative as well of, oh, where are the families? Those are all young, uh, capable boys. They are attacking our women. But that's something that we kind of keep seeing everywhere where this narrative of racial hatred exists, even though it's not really what is happening and all the factography shows that there is no uh, more crime there is no you know attack more attacks on women because this is patriarchal society this is misogynous society so it's not that women are attacked by some others because they are attacked on the everyday basis by men in the balkans it is kind of the construction public of hatred but then again quite lots of solidarity understanding humanitarian aid underneath this public presentation. And to follow up a bit on this same topic, I wanted to ask you a final question that will help me in my work, but also will help other people that listen to us and are part of organizations. What do you think civil society organizations can do at the moment to make life easier for migrants in a difficult situation? And how can they raise awareness on this issue so to bring the people to be more accepting towards the migrant? Um, It's a complex issue because, I mean, if we are talking about CSOs in Bosnia, I mean, not Bosnia, but in the Balkans, they are faced with quite a lot of issues uh, in the countries anyway, not just, uh, I mean, issues of migration, but issue of inequalities, issue of authoritarian rules, issues of dealing with the past, I mean, a lot, a lot. Uh, So, I mean, I kind of keep thinking that they need to find and think about common thread in all those fights are actually common fights. And those fights are, to be honest, against the neoliberal capitalism and consumerism that is kind of supporting this fascist narrative. So it's finding the way how to make all these struggles join like to find the common elements and to to work with so not to exclude any issue so for example i mean if we are talking about workers rights those are not isolated from the rights of people on the move or uh, uh, civilian victims of war to find the thread to actually kind to connect all the issues together So that's the one. If we are talking about civil society organizations in the West, because there is another problem there, because there is orientalization at the core of some, because there is this kind of white guilt and uh, whitewashing, so humanitarian comes and kind of supporting humanitarian uh, aid in the countries outside of their country, rather than working in their countries. I would actually recommend to the uh, civil society organizations in the Western countries to actually work with their governments and to address the fascist uh, politics of their government, because that's important. And we need to kind of create a network of uh, fighting jointly, but on the different levels and on the different kind of 
discussion, I mean, open the different discussions in different countries, because it's impossible to just deal, for example, for, with the issue of migration only on the level of the Balkan countries in humanitarian aid. This is really big political, political struggle. And I mean, there are, for example, you can actually see those discussions as, as well coming in EU Parliament from some progressives, not all, but some are actually trying to bring that topic in even EU Parliament. As regards to the kind of bringing awareness, either in the Balkans or across the Europe, I would actually say is do not other, do not kind of use the power position and present uh, people on the move as someone just needing humanitarian aid, as someone that is just victim, that someone that is not having the agency. I would rather sort of try to kind of look into the ways how we can find and support each other and or not support each other, but in this sense of put people on the move, support them to be perceived as first of all human beings, but then that they are human beings entitled to dignified life. And the problem is that if we are just, I mean, doing the humanitarian aid and not uh, not approaching to this humanitarian even aid as anything but, the, I mean, not approaching it through the political solidarity, we are just continuing gathering and we are just kind of, you know, you kind of form the line and just give the food. That's not, uh, that's not sufficient. That's not sufficient engagement. You have to talk to people, understand their needs, advocate and support them in uh, their human rights claims. Gorana, thank you very much for all your insights. From what you said, I really hope things will go on the right direction soon. But in the meantime, I'm sure that you could open the eyes of some people and you inspired us to do a bit more to make things right. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. This episode was created with the help of Mevlude Skuroshi and Celia Duplessis. Graphic design, Isabella Markova. Theme song, I'll Go Out to Run Now by Le Gang. You can listen to the Reflection podcast on Spotify. Back to you next week. Yeah.